Ready? So welcome back to Diaries of the Wild Ones. Once again, a huge thank you to Wild Earth Australia for supporting me in the adventurous lifestyle. If you guys need any gear for your next adventure, running, camping, climbing, hiking, you guys name it, these guys have it. So go to wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code Diaries of the Wild Ones, all one word, capital letters. Also, a huge thank you to Free Brewing Co., organic preservative-free beer. You'll find them at Dan Murphy's and BWS. Big black can, silver letters that say free. Organic preservative-free beer. It's a no-brainer. Enjoy, guys. So this story right here is exactly why I do this podcast. You're about to meet Michelle McFadden. Now, Michelle, I hope I got that last name right. But she is the winner of the competition that Wild Earth put on for us called Tell Us Your Tale. So a huge thank you to Wild Earth Australia because it gave me the opportunity to meet such a cool, amazing lady, have a really nice afternoon and hear such a wild story. Now, this story she told me had me on the edge the whole time. And we recorded this one outside of Ballinger, New South Wales in a magical rainforest called the Promised Lands. And we recorded on the bank of the Never Never Land River. So you'll hear the calming sound of trickling water as it rushes over the stones on the riverbed. I was nearly going to try and edit it out, but it's just so, so nice as background noise. It was such a nice experience doing it there. So I just love that I can pass it on to you guys, the listener. Okay, so strap in for this one because Michelle is a really good storyteller. She does such a great job at telling her story and it's a hectic story. So so strap in and I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy this one. And just thank you so much to Michelle for taking the time to enter the competition and then sit down with me and tell this tale. Enjoy, guys. Okay, you ready? Okay, once again, we have done it. Steph's making me nervous by looking at me. But once again, we've done it to the listeners because they're sitting down. Can you hear that in the background, that little waterfall? We're down. So what, what area is this, Michelle? Well, we're in a place called Glenifer, but the place we're in right now is called the Promised Land, and we're on the Never Never River. In just out of Bellingen. Just out of Bellingen. New South Wales, mid-coast. That's all right. And this is, I've camped here a few times, and I think it's one of the most... Oh, you're not allowed to camp here. I haven't camped here. But it's one... <laughs> It's one of the most magical places I've been, and we're sitting here. We've got an Indian rug we've rolled out on the riverside with the with. We're sitting on stones, and luckily we have these uh, cushions because it's quite comfortable. Mosquitoes are at bay, but we're here to tell your story, and you're actually the winner of the Wild Earth competition that we did. Tell us your tale, and you and you wrote in. Actually, you put so much thought and effort into into what you wrote and we Steph and I listened to it in the car coming down and or we read it in the car coming down and we had shivers mm. and we can't believe you went through such a traumatic experience and so for what first of all I'd love to like to thank you for for entering and and giving us that tale but but thank you so much for um having the courage to do that and then sit down with me today 
Thanks. You're welcome. It's um, it's a pleasure actually to to tell the story and and recognise that we can come back from stuff like that. Yeah. And and so you're you're from this area. You live in this area, Bellagia. Yeah. Been here for about ten years. Yeah. Yeah. But originally from Queenslander. You're a Queenslander. Yeah. Yeah. And you were just telling me before that you're you're getting into some adventures in your. How old are you now? If you don't, I'm 52. Are you 52? Yeah. No way. Yeah, have a couple of grandchildren. Are you kidding me? No. I thought you were like early 40s. I even said Great, to Steph, I'm stay. pretty sure she's early 40s. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding. You look so good for... Well, thanks. Oh, that's great. Adventuring lifestyle, see. It's the adventuring lifestyle, yeah. keeping you young. And so you've been guiding over and doing the Kokoda Trail. Yeah, for about 10 years now. Um, I walked it as a trekker initially in 2011, and I just knew somehow I'd, I'd have to come back. And so I approached the company that I went with and became a guide and um, have been doing it pretty much every year since obviously not last year with COVID. Is it hard? Yeah it's a hard walk it's a hard walk but nothing you can't prepare for and I think physic the physicality of it is something many people prepare for but what they're not ready for is the emotional side of Kokoda because it's it's real stories about real people real Aussies um, you know protecting their country and and real real people from Japan protecting their country so it's I think the emotional stuff really gets to people and that can wear them down. Is there still like quite a bit of ruins? Yeah, it's um, it's funny. I think if it was, you know, in a more populated or um, populated country, we wouldn't see what we see over there. But we can be walking along and, and a bullet will just present itself out of the ground or there'll be a grenade casing. And we don't touch it, of course, but we notify the local villages and they collect them and put them in local museums. Wow. Think yeah. about that, the story that that bullet or that that like grenade would have behind it you know like who left it there when it was thrown like not even just the energy is like that was there mm. to kill someone yeah you know no, it's, I mean? a, it's an ab- I think it's an absolute privilege to be one of you know not that many people who are custodians of the story of Kokoda because I don't remember learning about it in school I didn't learn much about Kokoda until I decided to trek it so to be one of those people that is able to impart the history to the trekkers as we go along the track it's really important to me so how do you trek Kokoda like, a, like if one someone wants to time. do it, one step at a time. <laughs> <laughs> like, how would someone do that? Um, well, there's many companies that trek along the Kokoda Trail. It's not one you'd do by yourself. Um, it's fairly well governed by the Kokoda Track Authority uh, to make sure, because the Kokoda Track's actually completely private land. So all the land you walk on is, is not public land, it's not national park, it's, it's private land. So there's an agreement with all those landholders and the Kokoda Track Authority to allow trekkers to come across. So it's quite regimented, um, there's permit systems and you don't really go and do Kokoda you know, with a couple of mates. You do it with an organised tour company, local outfitter or a company based in Australia. Is it expensive? Um, look, it depends on what you call expensive. Um, that it ranges, so it ranges anywhere. I think from about two or three thousand dollars to ten thousand dollars, depending on the company you go with and what you want provided. Um, the company I'm with, I'd say, is mid-range and provides a really good, safe, um, historically significant journey. Um, I've I've done it six times now, and um, I've only ever had one person that hasn't made it. So, you know, the training programs are really good. The support from the the Brisbane office is really good. How do you find that? So. For one, you're a guide, but for two, you've got to be a motivator. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I've worked with people all my life, and working with people is what I love best. So um, helping people to be the best that they can be is important to me. So, you know, I've had people um, who've never experienced anxiety or panic attacks in their life decide that that's the place they're going to have their first one. Um, and so, you know, I've done a diploma of counselling. Um, I've got a positive psychology diploma as well. And I just did that because I'm interested in the human condition and to make me feel more comfortable and confident in helping these people through their journey. How, 
how do you approach someone? Like, what's your what's your way of approaching someone when they're having that panic attack, or or not going into their fear? It was mm. Steph, you did it um, yesterday on the rocks, jumping off Crescent Head point you know like you got nervous and there's waves coming you know like when, when you're doing a rock jump surfing you you've got your you've got your gap in in the surf like in in the waves mm. it's like the the sets have gone the ocean's gone calm now's your time to go but then like getting that panic and i was like trying to like hesitating. get you to like you were hesitating i was trying to get you to go like come on like walk off the rocks now jump jump and then the waves started coming i was like you have to go mm. now but it's just like there's there's a way to approach that. I don't know if I'm the best at it, but like, how, how do you approach that? Like being a guy, like you would have to be good at that. Oh, look, I think it depends on the situation. If someone's having a, a panic attack, that's one thing. Um, and for that, really, it's just about bringing them back into their body and helping them to understand that we just need to take the next step. We just need to get to lunch or whatever the next step of the journey might be. Yeah. Um, and, and taking care of them along the way. So I'll stay with them and walk them through. Um, I've had many situations. We get a bit of, you know, barley belly in Papua New Guinea yeah. um, and it's different food and people can not sterilise their water properly and they end up with a bit of the runs and some vomiting and that's really tough because you've got a team of people and you've got one that's really sick and your options are if they're sick enough you need to evacuate them but if they're not you need to try and restructure your itinerary and change where you're going to camp and, and just work around that person to get yeah. them well enough to be able to, to walk at the pace you need to walk at to get to the, the back on itinerary Have you had it? Have you had anyone where, like, you, you've kind of had to, you know, like, yeah, I, I just kind of like someone that's like used to being babied, mm. you know what I mean? And you're like, and you're trying to reaffirm that, that they're capable the whole time. But, you know, like you can do that to someone to the point where it just gets frustrating. You're like, you can do it. Why don't you just do it? Does it ever get frustrating? I don't get frustrated, but there's certainly cases where I've turned up in Port Moresby and, um, you know, on my crew I'll have some of the muscliest, bulkiest men that have obviously been in the gym, you know, five days a week leading up to Kokoda and they're telling me just how fit they are. Uh, and, you know, some of the, some older women who might be 60 who don't look like they could lift a heavy log. Uh, and we get, we get walking and what these older women have been doing is training properly. So they've been training with a pack, they've been walking, they're getting the Ks in their legs. Whereas the, the muscle-bound men that have been at the gym five days a week don't have that kind of fitness. And they're the ones that struggle. Mm, and that's really hard endurance. because there's egos that come into it. There's shame that comes into it. And I've got to be really careful when I'm uh, supporting them that it's not about shame and it's not about blame. And it's about what can we do from here? How do we get you to the next place? I'm um, guessing you would see on a trek like that and guiding a trek like that, you would see people, you would s see people like have experiences oh yeah. you know like it's a pilgrimage yeah so I, you're like you're watching people having like these like life transformation mm. experiences around you and it's a real honor to be around people when that's when that's happening and be able to support them but i always say to them in port moresby when we're having our little briefing is that they'll start the trek with a backpack full of demons and somewhere along that that trek those demons are going to come out has that taught you oh absolutely yeah absolutely and it, it happens to me still you know i'll be walking along and I'll have a tough day. You know, people say, what's the hardest day on the trek? And it's different for me every single year. The hardest day is different every single year. So it depends really? on how I've eaten, my mental state, what my team's, how my team's going, what the weather's like, how my cr local crew's going. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I have a tough time as well, but I can't show it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've got a, at, at times like that, particularly when you're struggling, you've done a big 12 hour day, you might have someone sick. And so you're getting into camp really late and everyone's fatigued because you've been out there, it's really hot they're looking to me 
they're looking to the guide to see what, what I'm doing, how I'm reacting, how I yeah. look. And so it's really important to be that constant for them. And be that strength. Mm. It's funny too because like just being a guide as you were thinking about that, I was thinking like that'd be amazing like for something like, like for anyone to do because you have to be capable. Mm. People are relying on you. So it like it literally gives you so much inner strength. And like I know a lot of it comes down to the mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like pushing on. And so it's like that game in your mind. I often think about like how we said in the car, like Wim Hof when we're talking about mm. Mount Kilimanjaro. When he took those um, disabled people up Mount Kilimanjaro, I, I was thinking like, and because I, I meditated with Wim once and when it's just the power that he has. And I often, I wondered to myself, imagine climbing a mountain with him and you are just have this extra, extra human strength that you don't normally have because of the power that he puts in you. And he really puts this power in you. And I was, I was telling Steph yesterday, uh, he was standing behind me and he, and he was saying, like, you are power. You are mm. powerful. And that always has resonated with me. And then I, like, because I believe in him, right? And then I was, like, thinking about, like, imagine being on a trek with him and cross fingers touch wood, this never happens. But imagine, like, him, like, falling over and breaking a leg and all these people, like, relying on him and suddenly he was incapable to mm. do that job. And that is, like, and then I started thinking about, like, at war, and everything or like war it's like take out the leader take out the leader throws everything into chaos because everyone's walking around bumping their heads because mm. they don't know and it's like literally just a human trait so it's yeah. like wow like i've come close to that i mean uh, uh, the guides there's probably about um i don't know 15 or 20 of us guides that that work for this particular company out of brisbane and we have some funny stories you know we've got what my my one is just like you're saying i was it was day two and we're heading up Denali, which is a really steep hill, and it's often you hit the, the steepest part Denali. of the hill. Denali, yeah. Daniki, sorry, Daniki. Oh, oh, okay. So we're talking adventures. Yep. Um, Daniki, and it's when you walk up it, mostly you're in the sun. Mm. Most of the other rest of the treks in, in canopy. And I got a bit of touch of diarrhea and vomiting the first night in Kokoda, and I'm thinking, oh goodness, I got up in the morning, I couldn't eat. So, and I'm hiding the fact from my trekkers that I'm not well. My my local crew, so my head guide from Papua New Guinea, he knew, but from my Aussie crew I was hiding that from them because it's day one day two of the trek day one of the big walk and we were halfway up Daniki and I started to feel like I was going to pass out I had no nutrition in me I couldn't keep water down and I was at the back I'm always at the back and I have a head guide at the front a lead man at the front and I passed out and oh. I was in these this steep hill with choco vines and I just because of my backpack and you know I've fallen with a backpack on but it kind of flips you yeah. and you get this momentum going and so I rolled down the choco vines and of course all the local crew have come running down speaking pigeon to me and there's a big army fella in front of me and a couple of others that were on my trek and they've turned around and here they see their guide just rolling down <laughs> down the hill and um, I managed to get I managed to get up and um, get to the top of the hill and, and you know have a banana and keep it down and I was fine for the rest of the trek but yeah. um, you know it's it's amazing how quickly your strength can deteriorate because we come the trekking season in New Guinea is in our winter so we come from training really hard in cold conditions in winter and we rock over there in June or July and it's 35 degrees and going to rain and humid all day so um that's often a shock in the first couple of days so i had that i had no nutrition i couldn't keep fluids down and was stopping and jumping into the bush every five minutes so um i was all right after that but there's there's some hilarious stories from the guides around um you know some of those kind of situations wow yeah i just sort of a great question that i'm going to save for the end okay about being capable but all right oh i just i just love 
thinking about these challenges, like just pilgrimages, because mm. they just make you capable. Yeah. You're putting yourself into a situation where you just have to do it and you have to get through it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like this game. It's just like, you know, it's like hard times breed hard men. I love that saying because mm. if you put yourself into hard times, you're going to be like, just, just makes you capable. Yeah. You've got to deal with these situations, which kind of brings me to, um, to the story that we're here for, which is from what I read when you, when you entered the competition is mm. a quite a traumatic experience, but it, it takes us to Nepal and, and you being in, in Nepal, was this pre being a, uh, no, I was a guide. Um, it was 2015 I was in Nepal and I'd been guiding since I first went to Kokoda in 2011. So I've been guiding for a couple of years. So you're right in like the midst of your, your trekking. Yeah, kinda loving it. Time. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're out there doing it, yeah. sending it. So yeah. yeah. So what, what took you to Nepal? Always wanted to go to Nepal. It's been a lifelong dream and, um, you know, got to the point in my career and my life where I could. Um, and so I booked a trip over there just to do Everest Base Camp. And we went in uh, April and had a few days in Kathmandu first, which was fantastic in the Tamil district and really enjoyed our time there. Met up with the rest of the people I'd be trekking with. Um, I was friends with the, the lead guide, who's an amazing mountaineer, and um, started our trek. We had a, an amazing time. It what, was, was, what, was the, what was the trek that you were planning to do? Uh, Everest Base Camp. So it was yep. Everest, yeah. Yep. Yep. So and we did it. We did, we did get there. Um, and it was on the way back that that things went to shit. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah. So, so, okay. So you start, everything's going ready. It's perfect. It's all normal. Mm. You're on a normal trip. You're heading yep. towards Everest Base Camp. What yeah. was that like? Oh, it's amazing. And the country is, I mean, I ran out of words to explain just how beautiful the Himalayas are and how beautiful the people are. You know, we, we started the trek from Lukla, so we flew into the world's most dangerous airport. And, uh, many people might have seen or heard of that, and some might have flown into it. And it's built on the side of a mountain um, on a 30-degree angle um, facing upwards so that the plane can slow down before it hits the, the mountain, the other side of the mountain. And as you fly in, you can actually see the wreckages of planes that have been a bit low when they've come in. Um, so oh it is, it's God. actually the world's most dangerous airport, and just that was, a, was an adventure. So we flew into there. It's only a small airport and a small village, but it's about uh, somewhere around 3,000 metres above sea level. So you're flying into altitude, and from there we had a cup of tea and we start walking. Had you done any altitude training or anything? Um, not like not specific training in, in chambers or anything, but I'd done um, lots of training for the trek, but yeah. nothing in altitude. So yeah, just yeah. physically fit. You know, the highest mountain here is, I think... 1400 meters so. yeah as soon as you hit 3000 could you feel the effect yeah a little um i, I feel it when i'm trying to exert myself you know so yeah. we start walking and i start walking at a pace that i would normally walk at and then realize fairly quickly that that's not going to be sustainable so um we've got day packs we've got porters uh who are carrying our our main gear and we start walking and we go up through a number of villages um, the one most people probably know is Namche Bazaar. So we make our way up to there over a couple of days. We're staying in tea houses and, you know, the, the armour of the tea house. So there's a mountain over there called Arma de Blam. And Arma means mother and de Blam means necklace. And so every day you're looking at Arma de Blam and it's another, you know, mountain that a lot of people like to climb. Um, and in, in the tea houses, there's always an armour. So there's a mother of the tea house and she will come out and boss everyone around and get all your food and so is armor like the boss is that what it translates yeah, it's to no it translates to mother but to mother um they call the the lady that runs the tea house the armor of the yeah. tea house the mother of the tea house yeah, and right. so we got to meet some amazing people and you know eat some amazing food our local crew were, were really good we had 
uh, an Australian guide, but we also had some a local outfitter as well. And um, really enjoyed the walk. Like we had the most stunning weather, blue skies, uh, cold, just just amazing. The yaks passing you, their bells ringing. It was surreal. Every morning I would just wake up and pinch myself. How long? How long does it take to trek to Everest Base Camp? Is that two weeks? Well, we I think the whole trip up and back often is two weeks. There yeah. are some faster ones. Um, ours, I think we were something like seven days to get up to base camp, and then it's normally three or four to get down. Normally, three or four to yeah. get down. But um, we, we make in Namche Bazaar we have two nights, and in that that rest day we acclimatise by going up to the Everest Lodge and going up to some altitude and coming back down. Um, Namche Bazaar is a, a massive village, and it's got bakeries and you know, uh, outdoor gear shops. Yeah, is that and the main village that where they cook a lot of they and they take the stuff from there to, to yeah. Everest Base Camp, like food and supplies and everything? Yeah. That's I, look, I think they do. Um, there's a chopper pad there on the side of the mountain. Um, there's no fixed wing aircraft past Lukla where we flew into. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that's carried up is carried up on people's backs. And it was just amazing. We'd be walking along and I might have a sore shoulder from my pack and I'd be overtaken by a small Nepalese man carrying, you know, 70 cartons of beer on his back um, yeah. up to one of the tea houses. And I'm okay, I'm not going to complain about my backpack anymore. Yeah. Doesn't that teach you? Mm. God, that teaches you. Mm-hmm. Oh. And they're doing it, you know, with straps around their head and, and the weight on their back. They're not doing it with, you know, mountain designs or North yeah. Face backpacks that are fitted perfectly yeah yeah wow yeah okay so 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 you you get to everest base camp did you so we we get up um we we, we make our way up and by the time we get to lobachet we, we'd planned to be at everest base camp for the anzac day dawn service <gasps> so or anzac yeah. day service we're going to do that at 11 a.m and the local outfitters that we used um had were really well connected in nepal and a really reputable local trekking company and the they had arranged for us to go to base camp proper, which is where Alyssa was, which is where the yeah. climbers are that are readying themselves to actually climb Mount Everest. So our plan was to get to Gorak Shep, which is the highest tea house, the highest little village uh, before Everest base camp, and on the 24th of, De- of April, and then walk up that morning to base camp proper. So where where the base camp trekkers go to is quite separate to where the people who are at base camp ready to climb Mount Everest camp and that's deliberate because you know we can carry coughs and colds and all these little things in mm. to people that have trained you know for years and paid lots of money and get small windows of opportunity and if we bring a sniffle in or a flu in um, yeah. that can be really or even just a distraction yeah just yeah a distraction so we were going to be really really privileged to be able to go into base camp proper where mm. all the tents were and everything um and as we were trekking up, the weather, the, the guides were checking the, the longer range weather forecast. And what they saw was that by the time Anzac Day came, it was going to be snowing and the weather was coming in and it was going to be really windy. So uh, as a team, we decided with the guides to fast track a little bit and actually get up to base camp on the 24th, come back to Gorak Shep on the 24th. And then on the 25th, we left there nice and early in the morning 
It might have been Lobuchet we stayed in nice and early in the morning and we went down to Thukla Pass. Now Thukla Pass is at 4,000 and something metres and it's where there's a whole lot of monuments to Sherpas and climbers who have died have on died. the mountain. Yeah, so it's quite a sombre place and you know, there are prayer flags everywhere and lots of monuments and stories about adventurers who never never came I've home. I've got and the shivers thinking yeah, about this. Sherpas. Like, thinking about it, it's like it's, it's the ultimate test for mankind. You know what I mean? It's just like, and there's nothing else to explain why you would do something like that other than your own pilgrimage. Mm. You know what I mean? When you're saying like go to base camp proper, I pictured like being there and looking around and you're not, you're looking around at people that they're somewhere else. Like you're looking around at people that where the people that you're looking at, not all of them are going to come back. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just like, and they're all there for their own personal journey. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's something different. You yeah. know what I mean? It's kind of like when you, have you ever been to like a, a big meditation or a long meditation yeah. or like a retreat or something? And at first you're not really talking to people because you're, everyone's there for their own journey. You know, it's a private thing, mm. you know? Wow. Yeah. It just gives me the goosebumps when I think about these mountains because it's starting to draw me. Mm. <laughs> it's drawing me. I have to say when we got to base camp um, I think which was on the 24th of April it's amazing and you can look across from um, base camp where we go to base camp proper where all the tents are and there's just this you know there's two or three hundred yellow tents and you can see the Kumbu ice fall and you can see what these people are going you can kind of see what they're going to be doing and it's 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 almost surreal Um, and and you know for me I've never had a desire to to climb Mount Everest but Kumbu Icefall gives me yeah, nightmares, yeah. by the way. I have such respect for those people that put themselves in situations where they, they just have to do it for their own personal journey. And, you know, I've walked across Spain 920 kilometres with my backpack on, but wow. I, I won't climb up Mount Everest. That's not on my bucket list. Yeah. Yeah. So Everest Base Camp was stunning. And to get everybody there, and we were able to stay there for about half an hour, our um, guides had tea and thermoses for us so we could warm up with a cup of tea but the weather was coming in so we didn't stay there too long and we turned around and we got back to Gorak Shep and that's over 5,000 metres so you're trying to sleep at over 5,000 metres and it's really difficult even on Kilimanjaro your highest camp where you sleep is still in the 4,000s so I found it really hard to eat and really hard to sleep that night in Gorak Shep. Was anyone getting altitude sickness? Yeah yeah um mostly minor one one of our um a good friend of mine who was trekking with us he got evacuated out of Portsea so somewhere between Namche Bazaar and Everest Base Camp I can't remember the the height Uh, but he got a really bad chest infection and altitude sickness and there was just no way we could continue taking him up so he was choppered back down to Lukla and then flown into the international hospital in um, Kathmandu wow yeah so we lost we lost one and the rest of us made it to our summit which was Everest Base Camp Got back to Gorak Shep, uh, couldn't really eat, but everyone was filled with joy because we'd made it and we are on the downhill. The next morning into Lobuchet and we left before dawn because we wanted to do a dawn service. So the snow, it started snowing and we walked in the dark with our headlamps down to Thukla Pass and our beautiful local crew had built a, a stone monument for us and we had some of the people on our trek had, had people that served in uh, the war because it was the... It was Anzac Day, so we were yeah. you know, commemorating that. So we had photos and people had their, their grandfather's medals and all that sort of stuff. And so we did the full service. We had the last post and readings and we had we had a Turkish person with us 
So we had the Turkish flag wow. and the Aboriginal flag and the um, Australian flag. And we did a whole service as the sun tried to come up, but it was sort of snowing quite heavily. So we didn't see much light. And, um, and it was amazing. And from there, everyone was just elated. We had the rum, you know, to have a nip for yeah. dawn service. And we were walking down. And that, so that was early in the morning, just as the sun came up. And we walked for a number of hours. And we were sort of coming, we were in a, near a village called Samare. And it was 11.56 exactly. And I was walking at the back end with one of our guides, local guides. His name, was Wan, his name is still Wanda. Um, and myself and another couple of the trekkers from our team. And the rest of our group had gone off ahead a bit, and I think they must have been, well, I'll find out now later, they were in a tea house having morning tea and waiting for us. And so we were just walking along, and we're on a, quite a small little path, and the mountain came down to my right and off to my left kind of thing. And everything just kind of went quiet, like, because there was donkeys and there was birds, and then all of a sudden there wasn't, and there was nothing. And you look across and you just see the Himalayas. It's, it's quite amazing. And so we just, something made us just stop and stand still. And the path we were on was not a metre wide. It might have been, you know, 60 centimetres wide. Like intuition, like gut feeling. I'm not sure what it was, but it happened to all of us. And we just stopped. And And then what I saw was just tiny little rocks near where I was standing, just start to, you know, trickle down the side of the hill where I was. And I was, "Hmm, that's weird. And... Then I heard this sound, and I can only explain it like a like a deep guttural scream. It wasn't a person, um, and what I know now is that was actually the sound of the earth cracking, and I could hear that. But everything was still completely still, except these little tiny rocks that were starting to move, and then it just and then it hit and it started swaying. And I looked up the seismology stuff afterwards, and the Himalayas swayed a meter either side. Oh my! And I was God. I was looking across, and honestly that. The Himalayas, this is the biggest mountain range in the world, and it was swaying like palm trees. And I couldn't, I just couldn't fathom it. Like, you'd look at it and you'd go, nah, yeah. nah, it's not happening. And then where I was standing, of course, became quite precarious. And so Wanda, who was behind me, I remember him just yelling out behind me, run, run. And but, up ahead, we could see a flatter area that had a bit more, you know, purchase, I suppose. Are you in snow right now no, or rock? No, no. It's, it's just rock. It's just rock. It's, yeah, we're down past the snow level yeah, now. Yeah. It stopped snowing. We're still all kitted up in, you know, all our gear. And so we, we start to run. But because the path we were on was moving so much, it's kind of like a thunderbird. You know, you would you'd lift up your foot and you'd look at where you want to put it down. And by the time it got there, it was thin air or it was the side of the hill. So you, you kind of stumbled and fall and got up again and made our way. So this flatter bit. This right now, right now, what you're telling me is the the 8.8 earthquake. Yeah, 7.8 or 7.8 earthquake that hit Nepal. Yeah, you're on a mountain right now. Mm, Still, you're still at altitude, over 4,000 meters. And you're on the mountain, Mm. right in the middle of it, with the mountain swaying, with with the earth moving under your feet. That's what's happening right now. Yep, that's what's happening. And so the reaction was like the. That, that was smart That for Wanda just mm. to be like a flat ground. Yep. to be like He's a, a Sherpa. He's been in the mountains all his life. Yeah. Um, so we ran and got to the flatter area. And Sumit, who was one of our, uh, the, he was the head guy from the local outfitters, you know, from the Nepalese company. And he came running back from the tea house to kind of see where we ended up with. Because the people that were in the tea house have a, you know, a different story to tell about, what, about it. But one of the things when we were running was 
run, Wanda's yelling out, run, run. And I'm looking down because I need to see where my feet are going to go. And he's yelling out, look up, look up. And I'm thinking, how the hell, the hell am I going to look up and look down? But the reason he wanted me to look up was because there were boulders coming down the mountain and we had to make sure that we weren't going to get hit by them. And that some of these were the size of, like, cars. Well, did, so, was your adrenaline... You- oh, it, it was insane. I, I think my adrenaline lasted until I got back to Australia. Like, it, it, it was insane. We got up to the, the flat bit and Sumit had come back to meet us and I kind of just looked at him and said, was that an avalanche? Because I've got no idea what's just happened. And he said to me, that was an earthquake. It's hit down near Kathmandu and it's a big one. And again, another man that's been on the mountains for years. And he was right. We didn't know at the time, but it, would, it hit just 60 kilometres west of Kathmandu. And what I, rec- what I realised at that time was from having a chat to Sumit on the way up was that he had a wife and newborn twins in Kathmandu. <gasps> and we'd lost all comms. There were no communications um, in Nepal at all. So the only way we were, we were getting information was from other trekkers. And if someone had a satellite phone, they were calling America and finding out what was on CNN. Just wait, just wait. When you, when you le- made it to this flat spot that mm-hmm. you ran to, while the earthquake was actually just in full, full ball, because I'm, I'm guessing after that there was there would have been shutters, there would have been mm-hmm. aftershocks, aftershocks. Yeah. But right at this main shock that it happened, and there's boulders like rolling off hills coming at you guys and everything, and you've got this view of the Himalaya, you know, the, the what was saying the biggest mountains in the world shaking. Mm. Could you see avalanches? Um, we saw a few. We certainly saw the after effects of some. Avalanches, I think, are more related to ice. So we were seeing more locally what was happening to some of the villages. So we, we, met, we managed to regroup with the other group and we got into the tea house. And not long had we been in the tea house when the aftershock started. And they're scary. They're really scary because the buildings aren't structurally um, built, you know, really well built anyway. They're mm-hmm. kind of uh, bricks and margin. You know, there's a number of stories to them, but they're not like they're not reinforced like we have here. So, a lot of the buildings were damaged in that particular village, Samare. A lot of buildings were were decimated, but I don't think they lost any life. Were, were you scared that when the aftershocks hit, that like that that first earthquake was only the the start of it? Yeah, we had no idea at that stage. We didn't know the magnitude of it. We didn't, apart from Sumit knowing the country and knowing that it had hit down there near Kathmandu, we, we knew nothing. And that's we the thing, nothing. no one knows. We, could, we, we actually you know what I mean? were kind of going, well, that was a bit of a bugger. What are we going to do? Well, well, let's keep walking because we didn't, you don't really have much choice. So we kept on walking. We, we, we had something to eat. We kept on having to run out of the tea house every time it, the aftershocks came. And then we got back on the track and we started walking. And at that point, there were still groups coming up because no one knew the, the magnitude, literally, of what had just happened. So uh, we're walking down, and our, our um, accommodation for that night was in Tengbashe, and there's a really nice monastery in Tengbashe, and the poor, poor place is, I think it's been burnt to the ground twice and was devastated in an earthquake many, many years ago. Um, and so we headed toward Tengbashe because we didn't have the kit to sleep outside. We were sleeping in tea houses, so we didn't have tents yeah. and that kind of thing. We didn't get into Tengbashe until really late, um, and by that time, we'd heard reports of 300 people dead. Uh, the airport's closed. There've been people killed at Everest Base Camp. You know, there were all these sketchy kind of things coming in. But we had no choice but to keep walking. And that's really scary. And at this point, we still hadn't had it. We couldn't contact any of our family back home. How, how did you How did you feel? Like, knowing, like, what? Like, I know you just said, like, it was really scary. But, yeah. like, I mean, like, 
the complete unknowingness. You're hearing mm. like through the grapevine, you know, people are, yeah, people are being killed. You don't, you don't know the effects. There's no comms. You don't, wouldn't you just, you're, cause you're far away from home. You, you're yeah. in someone else's culture. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there is no, like you're a guest. Yeah. In a way, um, not knowing the full extent of it was probably a good thing, you know, cause we, we were only hearing patchy reports of 300 dead. I mean, that's terrible. Um, but clearly not as bad as what it ended up being. So we, we kind of still didn't know the devastation that had occurred in the Langtang Valley, the devastation that had occurred in Kathmandu, a whole range of places. So, um, But we did know that we had to get off the mountain and we knew that we didn't have any option other than to, to, to walk. So we get to Tangbashe, it's it's dark, and we look across and the monastery's, you know, collapsed. It's It's been hit by the earthquake. Most of the tea houses are in a similar state. Now, these tea houses sometimes can be three and four stories high. And we found the one we were going to be staying in, the bottom level of it, which is the kitchen and the dining room, and it's where everyone goes to eat uh, and have storerooms. That was that bottom bit was okay, but you could look at the top two stories above it and they were quite, um, you know, falling down on top yeah. of that kind of thing. And so we got in there. We were, you know, we, we stayed in our full kit. We had passports, we had headlamps, we had all of that on us and we tried to sleep. Um, we couldn't. We didn't get into sleeping bags because the aftershocks were happening kind of every half an hour to an hour. You, you and You needed to know if you could get up and, and run. Yeah, and every time they happened, we had to run outside. So and I don't like sleeping naked. Because it's freezing. Um, yeah, that's right. So, And it was snowing again that night. It was snowing. So, you know, we couldn't stay outside for very long either. Um, and yet inside... You know, I, I remember look, looking at Sumit, our lead guy, and I watched him, and he was as he walked around, he would stay underneath the beams, you know, underneath the structural supports. In the, and I'm thinking that's where I'm going to walk. And so, yeah. you know, when I laid down, I laid. Most people laid down under a beam. Um, um, we had food then because the tea house had been prepared to give us dinner that night anyway. So there was there was a meal, which was fantastic, and um, continued to just you know we didn't I get much sleep. I wonder for those locals too, like. In a way, they'd be so stressed. They'd be freaking out. They'd be one like worried about their own food, their own supplies. And then, how did you, did you feel like so. you were a burden? Well, you'd think so, but no. We, in fact, they are the most amazingly beautiful souls that I've ever met. And their first concern was for us. Really? And, and I'll, there's some stories I'll tell about a bit further down the mountain as we were trying to get out. That to this day, just give me goosebumps to see what these people are capable of and the generosity in their heart. It's amazing. Wow. Isn't it amazing? Like being a traveler, seeing, I think being a traveler, especially traveling raw and wild people, when they open their hearts, their homes, everything to you, it it shows you the beauty in humanity. Yeah. And I think it teaches you to do that. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It makes me aspire to, to be that generous with my own heart. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Okay, okay. So, so, so we, this... we had a very kind of disjointed night in Tengbashe and got up in the morning and started walking again. Um, and the next morning was the most glorious day weather-wise. It was mild, the blue sky, blue sky quite amazing, and, and, and that in itself was surreal. More reports were coming in. A thousand people were dead. You know, it was up to 17 or so at base camp, and we could see the choppers were coming backwards and forwards from base camp, removing the, the dead and injured. What was the energy like? It, it was a somber and calculated, I think. You know, we we were very, we kind of knew we needed to just keep walking to get ourselves to a place where we could be safer. Aftershocks were still happening. So, you know, they continued through the night and into the next morning. And 
so yeah, somber and calculated in that it was it was almost like got to get this done. Yeah. Got to get this done. And by this stage, though, we're going through villages where they're starting to pile bodies up and there's devastation So you're, you're still hiking. Yeah, yeah, we're still hiking. You're walking. So you're going yeah. through another village. And what the further you go down, the more devastation yeah. you're seeing. Yeah. And there were villages where we had played with kids. Me personally, I'd played with some kids in a tennis ball on the way up. And I remember the place. And it's not there anymore. You know, I'm walking back down going, it's not there anymore. What happened to all the people oh that were there? God, yeah, because you would have seen it looking how it looked yeah and then and come down and seeing and the it's like it didn't exist you know it's, it, the mountains just fallen on top of it and it's you know just slid down and it's like it was never there and that that's really sombering and it's it's that adrenaline as i said i think the adrenaline lasted until i got back to australia and um adrenaline and and i suppose a focus around what can i do um for myself to get me through this what can i do for the rest of the team to get us through this how can we how can we get ourselves safe and there wasn't much we could do for anybody else up there so we we just kept walking kept walking and so so the second day the day after the earthquake we were maybe 500 meters to the very top of namche bazaar so that's that big village yeah and namche is sort of built in a bowl and up the top of the bowl, I suppose we call it, is the school and the sports oval and all that sort of stuff because it's a flatter area and the rest is quite steep. So we're heading toward that and we could see it and we're on a narrow path and the second earthquake hits. Now, a lot of people don't know there was a second earthquake, but this one was still seven point something, I think, and it hit almost 24 hours um, to the minute after the first earthquake. By this stage, though, we've got a bit more, you know, earthquake savvy about us. Oh and so God. we ducked in to the high side of the path so that stuff could roll over the top of us as it came down the mountain. And then once the tremors, once the, the shaking had stopped, ran at altitude, um, the 500 metres or so into that flat area at the top of Namche Bazaar. And, uh, Terrifying. And that's, yeah. That's kind of where we, um, where we regrouped and we and almost all the other trekkers on the mountain, um, the whole village of Namche Bazaar pretty much came up because they, the second one, I think, you know, pulled them all out of their houses and they what? went, no, we're not staying here anymore. And so what it, it turned into, almost like a refugee camp. You've seen some, you know, I've seen yeah. pictures of these where it's just tent city and people were bringing tents up from everywhere. We didn't have a tent, so we were looking at a night in, you know, zero degrees or less, sleeping out in our sleeping bags on a tarpaulin. Did you have good gear? We had decent gear, but good gear for sleeping in a tea house. Yeah, you know, so but like, like when yeah. you're outside, it's like, yeah, you're yeah. out and you're, you're dormant, you're not moving, yeah. you're sitting there. So yeah. it's like, that's when the cold hits, it gets yeah. into your bones. We managed, um, our, again, you know, our local outfitters were amazing. They managed to get us soup for dinner and some water. So we had soup and water and Pringles. We managed, we actually ate Pringles for the next four days. But um, just we had some food and he managed to get a couple of tents. I think there was 13 men in one tent, you know, what? the size of this mat. And there was eight women in the other tent. That um, second, can I just ask mm. quickly, that, that, that second tremor, when it started to hit, what was the reaction knowing that it wasn't just an aftershock, that it was an actual earthquake? Like, how did you... I think at first we didn't know. It was, an, you know, because the tremors were happening, but this one started more fiercely. It started shaking. The ground was shaking a lot more fiercely than any of the other aftershocks that we'd experienced. And did you start yelling out to your to your team? Like, was, was I don't people think there was a need like, to. I think just, everyone just kind of they knew what to do. Yeah, pulled down. We knew we knew by this stage to look up. You know, that was you know one of the key things you had to do, and just did what you know, just did what we had to do. 
and then, to survive. Yeah, and got into the top of Namche. But it just, it was like this flow of people, just these stunned trekkers and villagers coming up and no one really knew what to do. You know, thankfully our local guide, as I said, was able to get us a tent and some food and we had a bit of rum left over from Anzac Day, so we drank that. Drank that. Yeah, yeah. and... Uh, and that would have warmed you. Yeah, yeah, it was nice. Being on that top plateau, overlooking, is it, how did you say Namche that? Bazaar. Namche mm. Bazaar, and it's in a bowl. Mm. Are you just looking down on devastation? Look, it's, it didn't look too bad, but when you get close to it, you can see that the houses are all cracked and there's some that have actually fallen down, but there was no structural integrity left to, to yeah. most of the places. It's in funny there. that with dilapidated places, it's like the resort on Keppel Islands. You know, from a distance, it looks, looks like great. a resort, and mm. you get there, and you're like, "Oh, mm. this is a fallen down, you know, pile of rubble." Yeah, like yeah. we we had our tents, and, and next to us, some of the local villagers from Namche um, set up a tarpaulin, and it was quite a big one. And underneath that, they had um, mats and you know what sleep blankets and things like that, and they had newborn babies, and there's heaps of them. This big family in there, and they didn't have sides on their tent. You know, they. They were, they were really sleeping rough. And so some of us got out what we could, plastic bags and spare clothes and threw them their way. And one, one of the other things I saw was there was this red tent. This Nepalese family came up from the village with their red tent and they set it up. And then all of a sudden there was this most delicious smell coming through the, the camp, um, as it was at that stage, with hundreds of people in it. And here's this beautiful Nepalese family whose house down the bottom there has been demolished. And they're cooking, they bought what they could up and they're cooking dal and giving it out to all of us because they were concerned that we hadn't eaten. I want to say us, I don't mean just our group, I mean everybody, everybody that was up there. The generosity was just, you know, heartwarming and almost unbelievable. It was like you've just lost your house and your business and you're up here cooking your last of your rice and your lentils for us. It's funny, eh? Like the difference in, you know, like that's that honor, honorable person. That's like the, the hero. It's like, you know, what does the hero do? You know, it's like mm. instead of playing the victim, oh, look at me. It's like stepping up to the plate and like, all right, this has happened. We can't control it. Mm. You know, let's do what we can. Yeah, I remember you in COVID I mean? when all the toilet paper was started to go missing from the supermarkets. And I was thinking, wow. After being something... That would never happen in Nepal. You know, uh, here's the people giving their last food out to complete strangers. I didn't believe that. Because I was overseas. Like, Mm, I was stuck. I got stuck, like, in Iceland when when all this stuff happened. And then I was, like, messaging home. And I'm like, are people really taking tour? But they're not. Like, I thought it was a media stunt or something. I'm like, nah. Mm. You know? And then people are asking me. I was getting teased by mates overseas about, like, oh, Aussies... Yeah, stealing the toilet paper. I'm like, yeah, true. What are you talking about. Mm. Oh, yeah. Okay. I hope we don't remain known for that across the world. But anyway, so, so so what was your, what was the 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 plan? So it was just to to right. hike down. Yeah. Like, are you trying to get? So from Namche, um, the the walk down from there is steep and had continued landslides with the aftershocks. So the next part of the walk was deemed by our guides as being too dangerous. And that's by many of them, obviously, because that's why a lot of us were holed up at Namche. And we weren't sure how long we were going to be there, but we needed to just to take stock effectively and, and work out what the next move was. Um, the next day, thankfully, Sumit was able to arrange helicopters for us. So 
we go trekking up to this helipad and that's a broad term but it's basically a bunch of rocks on the side of a steep mountain and we wait and assume it's arranged a couple of choppers I think one chopper that no two choppers that kept on coming backwards and forwards and getting us and like who's paying for that or is it like a uh, like ultimately the insurance company paid for it yeah um, you're like so yeah, you know travel insurance you're company. like oh, yep. I've got travel insurance I yep. can go on that yep. chopper. but initially we paid cash we all put in our pockets and paid cash and then it all got claimed back through the insurance company later did you have enough cash or a yeah, we did. without an ATM? Yeah, we did. There's ATMs in, in um, Namche Bazaar, funny enough. That were still working? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we, had, we had the money, we got the choppers, and they only take – that. for me, I was in the front seat, and these are tourist helicopters, so it's glass-bottomed. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, it's the last thing I needed. Look, some of the people that got on choppers before us were getting in – there's no seats in the back at all. Uh, and some of the people that were getting in, the trekkers just like me, not from my group, were getting in and there was a body in the back that's come from base camp. But they just have to sit on it, you know, and, and, and to get out, to get down to Lukla. And the choppers are only taking us to Lukla. So back down to, to the world's most dangerous airport. I got onto the chopper and I got in the front and I had my day pack on my front. And a few of us, a few of the others got in the back and it's just, a, you know, they're sitting on the floor and... They threw a couple of the big duffel bags in on top of them. And this chopper tried to take off and it just was too heavy. And it sort of went up and it hit the ground again. And it went up and hit the ground again. And I'm in the front freaking just looking at the 12-year-old, the guy that looks like he's 12 years old, flying the plane, flying the, the helicopter. And he couldn't get off the ground. or well, he could and then he bashed back down again. And so he motioned across to the ground crew, which is another bloke, who came and opened the door and they threw all the bags out shut the door and then he basically limped the helicopter across to the edge of the mountain and then tipped it off effectively so that he could then get enough speed to take off and and all it was seven minutes and it was probably the scariest seven minutes of my life even with an earthquake having just happened because he he kind of hugged the mountain range all the way into Lukla um, and I thought we you know earthquake's not going to kill us this helicopter ride's going to kill us and uh, there's actually some footage from from that helicopter ride of us in the helicopter and Why the, the fear in our sobbing is palpable. Why, why, did, he, why did he hug the mountain range? I think because I looked at him at one stage and I had tears streaming down my face and he took his headphones off and he said uh, something along the lines of, don't worry, what's wrong? And I said, I think we're going to crash. And he said, no, no, we're not going to crash. We're just too heavy. So I think he was just, you know. He was probably playing... Well, I don't know because I'm not. I'm just guessing. Like maybe the air coming off the mountains, yeah. maybe or something yeah. like in the. I mean, he clearly knew what he was doing, but yeah. didn't feel like it. No. Yeah. So we landed in um, in Lukla on the helipad, which is next to the airstrip, and the the, the blades don't stop because he's going back to get you know more of our group, and so you get out and you know like you see, you've got to duck down, run across. What, what were you seeing from the helicopter when you're looking down? We couldn't see. I mean, he didn't come across. I couldn't see villages. It was just natural Mountains. terrain, yeah. yeah. But coming into Lukla, we landed and I've got my backpack on my front, so I, how I'd been sitting. And I, they opened the door and I ran with my head down to get out of the, the way of the, the blades. And I kind of tripped over the edge of what I thought must have been a big bunch of duffel bags under tarps. And then I went to get up and put my hand down and it wasn't duffel bags. It was the bodies from Everest Base Camp. I know that because... I put my hand on a foot. So oh that's where the bodies were being stacked up. They were coming down in the helicopter and just being stacked up there. 
eventually moved across into the airport. What, um, if, what did that do to you mentally? Um, look at the time. It was just you got to do the next best thing. Is it just you, the yeah, reality so of it? it was just get up and get one off the helipad and and two try and go with our group and find some accommodation. Because what was it? Was it twenty people died? On, yeah, something on, like that. On, Nineteen or twenty. Yeah. On base camp. Yeah. And that's just that was just on the base camp, which yep. had like what is there a couple hundred people there maybe yeah. at most. Yeah. Yeah. Because they got buried by the avalanche. Mm. So we got into Lukla and. Found a place to stay. And as I was walking down the street, for want of a better word, in Lukla, I ran across, there'd been a group from when we started the trek out of Lukla, there was a group that kind of we passed every day. And sometimes we'd spend the night with them in a different tea house. There's a group of men all around 60 years of age on a school reunion. And we got to be good friends with them. And they actually were up at base camp the morning and we're just back at Gorak Shep when the earthquake hit. So we didn't know that. We'd lost track of them because we went a bit ahead of time. So I'm walking down the street in Lukla and two of them come up to me, you know, come past me. So we have a big hug and a big reunion. Oh my God, you guys are great. I'm going, where's Greg? Because there's these three musketeers, we call them, and they've been best friends since they were 15. Oh my God. And he said, Greg's in our room. And straight away I knew, I said, Greg's in your room. He said, yeah, he died. And I went, oh my God. And so here's his two best friends from their 60, from when they were 15, running around Lukla, trying to work out a way to get his body home. And they had the body in their hotel, in their tea house room, um, because there wasn't anywhere else to put it. Um, there's no morgues, there's, you know, there's nowhere. And, and long story short, in the end, for, for, for them, with Greg's wife's permission, they actually got the local Buddhists to cremate him there and then in Lukla. Took a couple of days on the side of the mountain. So we watched that and they took him home in a bucket. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. You, Pretty close you know to home. How he, how he died? Um, look, they think he had a heart attack. He wasn't killed by impact, but they think that the stress of it caused a heart attack. Hard to tell, but oh yeah. My so God. that was devastating. And you know, that that brought it home even more because by this stage, of course, we know there's thousands dead. Yeah, like how, um, how do you get a, a, a body home mm. when that when that whole country has just had a natural disaster? Yeah, and look, the issues we, we understand the issues were, so in Lukla, the only way out really is a fixed-wing aircraft and the airport almost every day closes at around 2 o'clock because the weather comes in and so that it can't be used. So Lukla was getting busier and busier because people were getting to Lukla, but there were only a certain number of little 12-seater planes that could come in and out every day. Um, any helicopters were refusing effectively to go into Kathmandu because the minute they did, they were you know, seconded by the government to be used in rescue operations. And so they couldn't come back. So you couldn't get a chopper out and you couldn't walk out because it's about a nine-day walk out. So what we would do is, I think we were there for five days in Lukla, and sanitation was becoming an issue. There was lots of people. There was lots of desperation. Every day we would get up in the morning and go to the airport. And oh, we would did, wait. Was, was plumbing still working? Like toilets yeah, and yeah. stuff? Yeah, it was. But a lot of people didn't have accommodation. Yeah. So, you know. Sleeping on the street. Yeah, yeah people, yeah. Have, that's the yeah. safe haven. They come up the mountains, yeah. come from other villages. And they're trying to get a flight out. Everyone's trying to get to Kathmandu. At this stage, we'd been speaking to the Australian Embassy and they knew where we were, but basically said, we can't help you until you get back to Kathmandu. You've got to get yourself back to Kathmandu. And so I think it was five or six days, but every day we would get up. And I mean, we had a ticket, but it was useless. Did you find them helpful? Who? The Australian Embassy. 
Look, they did everything they could, but they're in a, the, the embassy was, you know, structurally unsound. Some of it had fallen down. They're out in tents themselves. They were doing what they could. There's a lot of Aussies over there. Yeah. And their communication was good. And in fact, at one stage, I think after we'd been in Lukla for a few days, they did get someone from the embassy into Lukla uh, to kind of manifest all of the Aussies. Yeah. But he couldn't do anything physically to get us out. So um, we go to the airport every day. And at two o'clock, they'd shut the airport and we'd go back to the tea house. And it was just this constant every day going, hope, hope today's our day, I hope today's our day. And, and one of the things that gave me great joy was seeing the, the group that I talked about that had one of their trekkers die, um, actually with the bucket, get on a plane. And I was like, they would have, I, could, I would have given them my seat anyway um, yeah. for them to get home. But uh, in the end, what we worked out was that, with the help of the locals, was that the planes, the tickets meant nothing. And it was, um, so bodies are, bodies are piled up in one side of the airport. There's the pit toilets, so all we can smell is sewerage. And you have to sit there all day. And you can't leave the airport because you still go through a form of security, you know, to get in there. And people were just basically running out the doors and jumping on planes as they landed. And the plane was taking off because they needed to, you know, clear the runways as quickly as possible. And so concocted with our guides and a number of the local people, um, we effectively hijacked a plane to get ourselves out of there. How? So <laughs> we moved, when we knew the next plane was coming in, we moved all of our group as close as we could in if you can imagine it's a mob of people was it because close. you're like because everyone's just running on yeah so you're like well we're, yeah. we're missing out every time yeah you're like all right what's our strategy We've got to get we need to get oh. yeah and you know there was food issues and clean water issues and we needed to we needed to do something so the way we did it was um with the help of the locals moved as many of us toward the front of the mob as possible and then as soon as the plane hit the ground i just remember a couple of big men grabbing my backpack and you know pulling me through the crowd and as they were doing with the rest of us and we ran out onto the tarmac and climbed aboard a plane and they shut the door and the pilot just took off now they're little planes so you can i'm sitting right behind the pilot i can see the pilot yeah and i can see all the instruments and and we take off the planes had a very quick turnaround time because they needed to to get everyone out and he took off and we we kind of breathed a sigh of relief we're like on our way to Kathmandu you beauty you know yeah it's like oh i've made it out yeah yeah we're we're on we're 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 one step closer is what we kept on telling telling ourselves we're one step closer every step we take is one step closer and were you scared that you're going to get stranded there like that you well we were stranded there i think i don't know about i don't think scared's the word it became more a fait accompli like we are stranded here so yeah. what can we do to get out? What's happening? I know the Indian government sent over one of those big helicopters with two blades and, a, you know, it can take lots of people. And it landed. I watched it from the window of the airport. It landed and was completely mobbed by Indian citizens. And I'm talking hundreds of them just mobbed the tarmac and were hanging off this chopper. It couldn't take off in the end because it could only take whatever it could take, 20 or 30 people. But there were hundreds just not letting go of the chopper. It was we- mayhem. Was the Indian behaviour different to the Nepalese behaviour? Oh, look, I don't. I didn't was see it, many Nepalese just, trying to get out. I think it was just desperate behaviour. Yeah, People, just desperate behaviour. You know, it's just desperate behaviour, and and you know, I felt it. I felt we're we're in we're in a desperate situation. You were know? you proud of yourself with how you're dealing with the situation? Like like the the you before this, mm-hmm. did you know? No, if you'd, you'd asked me, step up to the plate if you'd like asked this? me before 
this if I could handle that? I would have said, no way, no way. But when you're in a situation where you don't have a choice, you just, you just do it. You just, you just do it. And, you know, I, I think my behaviour was pretty good, but I also probably could have behaved better, you know, in myself and what I told myself, the stories I told myself. But I held it together pretty well, at least until Kuala Lumpur. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah, so oh, I, I won't jump too far ahead. So, um, so we hijacked a plane. We're on the plane and we're thinking, thank goodness. And it comes down the downhill runway because when you're leaving... Look yeah. like you go downhill, and then the plane continues downhill till it gets enough speed before it can kind of come up again. Me out how a plane can yeah, land and go up. Crazy. Yeah. The trip to Kathmandu is half an hour, and forty-five minutes goes by, and we're thinking, we're kind of looking at each other, going, "Where's this plane going?" And we can't speak to the pilot because we don't speak the language. And anyway, we ended up we'd hijacked the wrong plane. We hijacked a plane that took us to a place called Baratnagar, which is on the eastern east of Kathmandu, right down. It's about three kilometres from the from the Indian border. So we go from what? Um, yeah, we go from Lukla, which is still at altitude, and we're in puffy jackets and thermals, and we land at three hundred metres above sea level in this concrete. So- uh, airport in, <laughs> on the edge of India. So you're trying to escape yeah. so you can get to Kathmandu to yeah. the Australian embassy to, yeah. to, for your like only hope to actually get yeah. out of this this country that's had this huge natural disaster. Yeah. And you've gone the wrong way. Not only have we gone the wrong way, we've ended up in near India and without a forwarding ticket to get anywhere. One of the impetuses for hijacking the plane effectively was that the Australian government had sent over two of the, are they called DC-17s or C-17s? The big planes where the backdrops open and people go in to the cargo area. And the government had sent two planes into Kathmandu to evacuate Australians. Now, we already knew one had left and the other one was leaving that night. (gasps) And so our aim was, our sole purpose was to get back to Kathmandu in time to get that last, because they'd said there weren't going to be any more. I'm going to bite all government. my mouth. <laughs> Don't. I've had to move. I'm like sitting up. So, <laughs> so that was kind of the impetus. And we end up, instead of going to Kathmandu, we end up in Baratnagar. So that was where actually we pulled a few strings around with the embassy, um, got on to Steve, the Australian ambassador, and said, listen, this is where we are. They, won't, they wouldn't sell us a ticket to Kathmandu. So we managed, with the help of the embassy, to get some tickets. And the way we did that was by ringing our local member here, Saying good day, mate. How are you? Yeah, I guess um in Wait, I'm in local a place member called... in Bellingen. Yeah, well, actually in the in the electorate here. Yeah, it, he's not the member anymore, but he was. And saying hey, uh, yeah, how, how you going? Yeah, good. Um, stuck in a little town near India. Need a bit of help. And so anyway, that's when the ambassador rang us, and then he got the thing moving, and we ended up getting thirteen tickets on a plane that night. Wait, can you do that? Yeah, we Wait, had to pay for them. Sk- no, 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 no. I mean, I, well, no, you probably that. can't like, technically, but um, no, but it was useful. Local members have like so basically anyone in the government. Yeah, look, we just rang him and said, look, we're stuck. We can't get onto the embassy. And he got the embassy to ring us. Can you pull some strings? Yeah, he just got the embassy to ring us. That is a brilliant idea. So we, our plane came about 7.30 that night, but you should have seen us. We all rock into this, this, um, you know, concrete floored kind of, um, shed like airport in thermals and puffy jackets and it's sea level and it's hot as Hades. So we're stripping our clothes off in the middle of this airport and, you know, we're walking around in our thermal bottoms and a singlet top and Mm. we, we look atrocious like you're in pajamas and we looked atrocious anyway because of what we'd been through and you yeah. know we hadn't showered for days and anyway um our plane arrived it was about 7 30 at night and we thought we might make this australian plane we might make it and the plane the australian plane was taking a run to bangkok we didn't care where it was going particularly as long as it was out of nepal 
And so we arrived, um, we hit the deck in Kathmandu and as we were running down the runway, we were watching the back of the Australian plane close <gasps> up. No, and it, no. And, yeah, and it take off. And I tell you, that was just... Yeah, your, were your you heart yelling? Sank. No, everyone was just like, ah, oh, shit. How, and there's yeah. no one to get on the radio and just go, wait, five? No, no. It was well and truly on its way down the, down the runway by but the time I'm guessing, we landed I'm guessing properly. you guys as Australians just not alone. There, no, no. other stranded yeah. Australians still. Yeah, yeah. So we... We got off the plane and made our way to the Australian Embassy. So this time is about 11 o'clock at night, I think. What was it like being in a foreign country, stranded like that, in the middle of a natural disaster, death all around you, like tragedy mm. all around you, destruction all around you, to meet fellow countrymen going through the same thing? It was quite amazing. We were warned before we arrived in Kathmandu about what Kathmandu was going to be like because it was, you know, parts of Kathmandu were decimated and other parts were relatively untouched. But because most of the, the people in Kathmandu and in Nepal are Hindu or Buddhist, but mostly Hindu, within their religion, they must cremate their bodies within a certain period of time. I think it's 24 yeah. hours. I could be wrong there, 48 hours, 24 hours, uh, in order for reincarnation and all that sort of stuff to occur. And because the Ghats, which is the place where you normally take people to be cremated, it's on the mm. river there, and we'd been there before we started our trek, um, they were completely overrun. Um, people were literally burning the bodies in their front yards. Yeah. So the smell of burning flesh, we, we were, that's what we encountered as we came into Kathmandu. Um, and in a smell like... Did it's just like you, you burn your hair by accident or you burn your skin. It's that yeah. smell but multiplied terribly. So you, oh, my God. Yeah. Not many people today like mm. know what that's... I, one thing that happens to me every Anzac Day is I wake up and I smell that every Anzac Day. It's quite psychosomatic, obviously, but um, it's just something that happens to me every Anzac Day. Didn't like 10,000 people all up die? Yeah, it was 9,000 people. 250,000 people rendered homeless. It was, it was hugely devastating. Hugely devastating. Wow. So we were prepared, well, as prepared as you can be for that. Um, and we got from the airport to the, Katman, to the embassy in Kathmandu. And it's all secure and, you know, they, the security guards come out and then Steve, the ambassador, comes out. Which one's Michelle? That's me. I have a big hug and he's like, come on in. And so we look like death warmed up, literally. And we come on in and they've got um, the whole grounds are set up with tents. And they've got some mats and some sleeping bags and things. And they've got the, the ration, the Australian Army ration packs. So they're like... Um, the big tins like baby formula tins size of, um, you know, re casserole, pardon me, casserole and all these different foods. And we were literally just eating them with sharing one with a spoon, just eating it and um, they had water bottles. Did you feel safer, like seeing those ration packs, seeing like your country, see, like Steve, yeah. like, you know, it's like, wow, like you're, you're, you're with your countrymen. Yeah. And, and there were other Aussies own. in there. Um, look, one of the things that, was amazing and I will give them a plug because I've never had an experience like it was at our insurance company um, the one I was with and most of us were with it's called Covermore travel insurance uh, fairly common in Australia I've used them for years but I've never had to call on them you know so I've been insured them with them with them for years when we arrived at the embassy we walked into I think there were about six people in Covermore shirts so they deployed these people after the earthquake into Nepal you're kidding. There was two, from memory, there were two risk officers, a GP, a nurse, and a trauma nurse, and a psychologist. So when we walk in, they hold, they basically grab us as we walk in. And 
look after us and check us out. An and from a health company yeah, did that. They're from normally running the other way. Well, they not only did that, the next, so we, we went to sleep. Um, we ate and went to sleep. It was late at night and got up the next morning. Weren't sure how long we were going to be in there because whilst commercial flights had started again from the airport, there was a big backlog. So, you know, our flights weren't due to go for, you know, a couple of days. So Where, where, where are you going to sleep? In the embassy, on the, in the tents on the grounds. Yeah, that's where we stayed. Um, and there was the food and there was water and there was Did toilet. they have like just mats or like air mats um, or something? They, they must have a big stash of them. They were just mats, you know, little air mats or little uh, like yoga mat kind of things. Um, and big tents. So everyone's just in tents together. And the next day though, um, the ambassador got all of the Aussies and we had some New Zealanders in there together. And then Covermore got on the microphone and said, we have chartered an AirAsia jet out of Australia and it will be departing Kathmandu at 10 o'clock tonight. And we will take all the Aussies we can out of here. Even the ones that weren't insured with them. I mean, I'm sure they would have on charge that to wait. the insurance company. Cover. They, they were the only insurance company to charter a jet to get Aussies home. It's amazing. What is this called? What Cover more. Cover yeah, more. I'll give them, I'll give them a big plug because they wait, were wait, amazing. They... Yeah, because sometimes my, my sister works for insurance. Like, yeah. And she always said, like, you know, sometimes it's worth paying because I've always mm. just got the cheap one. To the point where I was getting cheap travel insurance. Mm -hmm. That was the name of the company. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, yeah. And like, they, you know, I was in hospital in, in Korea. And with health, they kind of look after you. But yeah. when I've had stuff being robbed off me and stuff. And I've never, I've never had anything reimbursed getting robbed. They've always found a, a way out of it. I'm not that company. Yeah. Just every, every company I've been with. We started getting so, text messages from a representative of that company uh, when we were in Namche Bazaar saying, we know you're over there, tell us where you are, what's your status. And, and all the way down the mountain, we were having contact from them on tech, by text message to find out oh. where we were. It was, it was quite phenomenal. We weren't expecting to see them oh, in the embassy God. and we certainly weren't expecting a, a plane home. When I, bl I blew my knee out of Mexico, was that last year? We just changed years, so the year before, whatever. I had to go to the airport. I had tried to go to the doctor. I... I tore, I ruptured my knee mm. last day in Mexico or whatever. And because I had a ticket flying out in a couple of days, the insurance company just barred me. And I was just, I was trying mm. to get either an upgrade or something because I couldn't sit in a normal seat. I couldn't walk. Like that was, and they just barred me because yeah. I was coming back to Australia in a couple of days. There was like nothing. And they're like, oh, unless you go to like a specialist. And they're like, no, nah, we're not. Pa it was just, mm. there was no help. And I was like in so much pain and trying to like get around. Yeah. Yeah, it's my only experience where I've ever actually had to use my travel insurance. Wow. But, but anyway, so okay, yeah, yeah, so yeah. the next day we wake up, we know that there's going to be a plane out that night at 10 o'clock. So we all head to the airport around 8-ish, I suppose, and it's bedlam. But we've got a charter plane, so we're lined up. We still wait many hours. I don't think we took off till about midnight. But we get on the plane and the Covermore doctor and trauma nurses and everyone's there and they're checking everyone. I had a chest infection from Lobachet down, so I wasn't... I wasn't physically well. Um, I got better as I went down the mountain. So we'd have a full check, be administered whatever we need to be administered on the plane. And it wasn't, I think, until the plane took off and the pilot came on and he said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this emergency evacuation flight from Nepal. See, I'll get... Oh, yeah. my God, yeah. And that's when... That was when you kind of went, oh, fuck. What just yeah. happened? Yeah. Yeah, and that was kind of when I lost it a bit. Um, yeah. I didn't lose it outwardly, 
but I just I couldn't talk. I well because you'd yeah. been in go, you've been in that yeah. that moment that you're saying like you've been mm. in that go. We've just got to get out. We've just got to get out. And now you've gone from you having to do it for yourself to suddenly like someone else is taking yeah. the reins. Someone grabs you and, and so says, you "I can, got you." You can kind of let go, and then suddenly yeah. the emotions. Oh, I've got the shit. Yeah, yeah. Steph's got the shit. Yeah. Steph. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, so we, we flew into um, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia and when we got off the plane in Kuala Lumpur, um, there were cover more staff there with signs that had every capital city in Australia on it and you just walked across to it and then they took you and rebooked your flight to wherever you needed to go. Are you or, kidding me? Or wherever else you wanted to go. So if you wanted to go then to London or Bangkok or whatever, you go you go there and they book you a flight. So. We, I was going to Sydney to coughs, so um, someone took me to the counter and they took my passport and they just did everything for us because they could see that we were, you know, not really capable. And they put us up, then, then, so that was early in the morning, you know, 6.30. So they put us up in one of those big hotels that's in the airport in Kuala Lumpur because our flight wasn't until the night time. So when we walked in there, it was breakfast time and there was a big buffet breakfast. And so they sent all of us in to go and have breakfast. And I couldn't, I couldn't go in there. So I walked in and I saw all this beautiful food and real coffee. I should have been hoeing in um, after what we'd been through and having a nice flat white. But I couldn't, I just couldn't. I couldn't stay in the building. I couldn't look at the food. And in contrast to what I just saw and what I was leaving in Nepal, there was a part of me that really struggled to leave. But I also knew that the advice was, Aussies, you're just a burden. Get out. Let yeah. you know, get out and let these guys sort themselves out. You're not going to be a help by staying. So I just I found the incongruence between what I was seeing in this beautiful five star Malaysian hotel. Yeah, where everything's fine. Yeah, everything's yeah. perfect. And there's people that haven't been in the earthquake that you know they're on holidays somewhere else in the world have come through did, there and did, they're having a lovely guilty? time. I had a bit of survivor guilt when I came back, but at that stage it was just I couldn't I couldn't fathom the contrast. I couldn't and I couldn't be in the building. So I actually sat in the car park for most of the day. They did eventually get me up into a room and I had to sleep and then out again. Could, could you sleep? Um, I think I did. I was exhausted. But I couldn't stay in the room if I was awake. So, you know, these are high-rise, five-star resort, uh, five-star apartments. This is like, yeah. well, it's a hugely traumatic experience. Like we're here telling, telling a story. Like, you're, you're, you know, like you're, you're telling us what you went through. But like to put the listeners or, and me into... Like, I'm sitting here seeing the emotion mm. in your face. Like, yeah. I'm sitting here seeing the toll that it's had on your body. You know what I mean? That, that it's had, had on your life. It's like, you know, you've been... Like, a, I've got the shivers right now. Like, imagine in Australia, like, right now, something that happens like that around us and, like, this beautiful town mm. we're in just behind us. Like... Yeah, like, there's, there's 4,000 people in Bellingham. 9,000 people were killed in that earthquake. Mm. You know, it kind of brings it home as well. Yeah, like ima- yeah. Imagine like you you you're just watching the earth move around mm. you and buildings fall down and then just yeah. death. And then it becomes a a kind of survival thing. You know, it's how do we get ourselves out of here? How do we get home to our families? Well, you still did you feel lost when you're in Kuala Lumpur? Um, well, we went there long, so we, just for that kind of day from the morning until the night, and then on the flight. Uh, into Sydney, and it was a very quick turnaround in Sydney on to our Coffs Harbour flight. So I think we arrived back in Coffs about lunchtime, whatever day it was, I had no idea, to, with my family. So my, my husband at the time and my two sons and my daughter-in-law met me at the airport. 
and that's another that uh, lost it even more then. And I went back. It must have been during the middle middle of a week because I know I went back to work the following Monday, which is when I was scheduled to go back to work. You know, so the kind of yeah. work that I came back and I went back to work, and I kind of had a, a sense of I know I had a sense of survivor guilt, and every time I ate something nice or put on some nice clothes, I kind of went, wow, you know, just those people over there, they've they had nothing to start with, and now they've got definitely nothing you know and so I had this just sense of unfairness or unjustness or inequality and I struggled with that so yeah yeah. yeah. so I went you know I went to work and I was all good um started running again and you know doing triathlons and all the things that I would do to run away from my feelings and it was about three months after I think and I was just showing my boss something on my laptop in my office and I had a stand-up desk and I remember just it was banal it was not even I wasn't I didn't think I was stressed and I um I just started having the shakes and hyperventilating and next thing I know I'm in my office and there's two paramedics and I'm on a stretcher and they're wheeling me out and if you ever want to kind of highlight your career um as a you know as a senior manager in an organization get yourself wheeled out through the whole building on a stretcher um, anyway, I didn't know what was going on. And so they kept me in the hospital that night and did a whole range of tests to find out what was going on. And, and ultimately the doctor said to me, I think you had a, a breakdown. And I said, piss off. I said, I don't suffer from mental health issues. I'm, I'm good. I'm strong. I just got through a freaking earthquake. Like, really? And he went, right. <laughs> okay. So I like to refer, refer to it now as a breakthrough. But I, I did seek help after that. I went and started to see a psychologist really? for the first time in my life. And I've been seeing him ever since. It's good maintenance. What did um, that do, do for you? I've, I've wondered about this with people with trauma yeah. about like going and... Yeah, I think part of it was just allowing me to, to tell the story to him in a, in a way that could identify what the issues were for me and what was sitting in my body as trauma. Do you like a beer? Um, mine's still going on good things. Um, he also does... He, he also did... He was brilliant. He's brilliant still. He does some something, it's got an acronym, but it's kind of a rapid eye movement desensitization process where we did that about around helicopters because I, 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 when I came back, I'd, I'd be going along just fine and then something would sound like a helicopter or a helicopter would come across and I'd literally find myself under a table and I wouldn't even know how I got there. You know, if someone dropped a... Proper PDS. Yeah, dropped a thing of glasses at a restaurant behind me, I was gone. So, so you have PDS, or yeah, you have. Yeah, or, I, you I functioned pretty well, except these little things would happen. And, and then, of course, I had this, this um, episode, as I like to call it, in my office. And, um, yeah, it taught me a lot. That, that taught me a lot. And it, it allowed me the opportunity to look at the learnings from that trip and what it meant for me as a person and what, what my life was like up until then and what I wanted it to look like in the future. You know, I'd been given a second chance and what was I going to do about it kind of thing. And so I'm a, I'm, I'm a completely different person, I think, than I was before I went on that track. And who I am now is far more compassionate and present and living life just for the moments of everyday adventuring and everyday love and connection. Do you know, yeah. do you know what the irony or the, the what sucks? <laughs> sucks <laughs> that's not the right word, but what, what is so, so, so unfair about about that as like your awakening 
you had to go through such a traumatic experience. And like right now, it's like you're sharing your experience mm. and you have these huge life lessons of what that experience taught you. Now, Alan, Alan Watts, he, I remember this lecture he did talking about like awakening to, ext- yeah, awakening to extreme circumstances. Mm. You know, like it's like for some reasons, like human beings, like it's like that waking up, like someone dies or like seeing something traumatic and suddenly wakes you up to life to like realizing like what's in front of you, you know, mm. the appreciation and love and everything. And it stops you from being bitter. It stops you from like yeah. worrying about these little things, you know, you just kind of, and that's, you know, that's the awakened person just gets to like live life and be happy and mm. love. Right. And I remember Alan Watts talking about like, like imagine if you didn't have to have that traumatic experience. Yeah. You know what and I mean? Look, I think we get, I think we get taps on the shoulder. You know, we get mm. tapped on the shoulder and then we get kicked up the butt and then we might get pushed over and, you know, sometimes we're smart enough to, to, to heed that yeah. and make the changes in our life that we're being called to make and other times it takes an earthquake, you know, to, yeah. to, to get you to wake up and that I think is the case. It's the way I like to look at it anyway. I, I think mm. I titled my article, It's Shaken Me to Awaken Me. Shaken, yeah. yeah. That's what, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I... I would never choose to go on an adventure that involved something like that because obviously it involves a whole lot of death and devastation. But I don't regret having been in Nepal when the earthquake was on. I don't regret the experience that I had one yeah. bit. Well, there, it's the, helped to form who I am. The reason why I say that is like looking at you and seeing the emotion and the effect that it's had on you. And I, I'm going to ask you in, in a second, you, you touched on it at the start about like who you are now as a person. Mm. You know what I mean? And and the reason why I'm saying this and why I said that before is like as the listener, the listener sitting there at home right now, like listening to this or, or in their car, it's like, you know, it's like, Michelle, like you've gone through this like huge traumatic experience to have this awakening and like be the person you are. I'm like mm. that person at home to like, to you know, to enjoy that sunset or to enjoy, you know, like the you know, the warmth of the ocean this morning, to enjoy that mm. drive we just did through here, to enjoy this river we're sitting on, mm. to appreciate the small things in our life. Like, it's suddenly like, as you're saying that, just hit this, like, it just resonated with me. And like, that was something I just realized that there's this huge lesson in there. And if I could, like, if I could, like, get someone to, like, learn anything from this story would be like, it's like, fuck, we have it so lucky Yeah, how we have it here. Just appreciate what the fuck we have. You yeah. know what I mean? Like all that small stuff that we worry about. It's like Steph, you know what I mean? Like, you know, like Steph knows it. We're looking mm. at her. She's a happy chappy. Yeah. You know what I mean? What, what has this taught you? Um, I think like, it's taught me what you just talked about, which is we are so lucky, you know, in, in this country. You know, I was brought up in a good home. I, I'm employable. I've had jobs. I've worked hard. You know, and I live in an environment now that is just stunningly beautiful in terms of its natural environment. We've got, you know, Gondwana rainforests and this beautiful river. And We're sitting on like know. one of the most picturesque yeah. places in Australia yeah. right now. We, as we so are. So it's taught me to be grateful for those for these things, but also for the little moments. But it's also taught me that, you know, that thing we think we can't get through, we can. And I'm not talking about an earthquake. You know, there's, there's things in life that we think we can't do. And we're kind of like tea bags. You don't know how strong we are until you put us in the hot water. So jump in the hot water every now and then and, and see how strong we are. And we don't get to do that by sitting on the couch. We don't get to do that by not pushing our edges. I have a saying, and I kind of say it in jest, and it's if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. 
And I think we've got to we've got to push our edges and just yeah. see what's over the other side and how far we can stretch them. Well, that's becoming responsible too. Hmm. You know, becoming responsible. You know, you know what I mean. It's like, you know, like you have like a you have something that you're dwelling on that anger inside you or frustration. You know, I'm talking about just an every day to day life, and it's like addressing that. Hmm. You know, you know, I've, we've been talking lately about like having the courage to actually look at yourself. You know what yeah. I mean? To know like there's something not right and to actually having the courage to call yourself on it and like work on that too. Yeah. Have that happier life. Look, I think there's, I think we've got to choose our hard. So everything's hard. Mm. You know, being an adventurer is hard. Not being an adventurer is also hard. Being fit and healthy is hard. But not being fit and healthy is also hard. Uh, being in a committed relationship and having hard conversations and being really open and vulnerable is hard. And being in a platonic relationship where there isn't good communication, that's hard too. And so it's about picking our hard. Which hard are we going to choose? Mm. And, you know, I know for me, sometimes I, I'm not perfect by any means, you know. And I was, one of the things that's changed a lot in me was my control freakness. Because I was an absolute control freak. Everything had to be perfect. And if it rained on the day I was going to have a picnic, I'd be cranky. But wow. all of that's all of that's changed because it's, it's uh, this you know this one square meter me and my one square meter around me is what I can control, and I control how I react to things, but I can't control what happens around me. But I can only control how I react to it. How's nature is always the biggest teacher for mm. control. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yep. Little teacher. Something like that. It's like, <laughs> you know, it throws a curveball at you. That's what sailing does to you. That's what mm. being in the mountains does. That's, you know, being in a natural disaster like that, what a way to get have control taken away from yeah, you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. No. And I think the other thing would be that, um, I mean, I personally, you know, I, I see, I remember seeing, you know, Band Arche and terrible disasters where you'd see Julia Gillard, whoever our prime minister at the time was, on the news saying, we're well, urging Australians to get to the embassy. We're urging Australians to get to the embassy. And I never, ever in my life thought that I would be one of those Australians in a country with a natural disaster being urged to get to the embassy. You know, so when we think that, well, it won't happen to us, it won't happen to us, but it can. And that, that's taught me that, you know, I'm not immune to, to any of that kind of stuff. Could as easily be me that died over there. Do you feel you're a more capable, stronger person from that? I'd like to think so. But, and that ebbs and wanes, you know. Um, I, I, I like to think that, the stuff I do on Kokoda has also made me a, a, a better version of me, physically, um, mentally and emotionally. Um, one of the things that's happened since Nepal is that I cry a lot, but I don't care anymore. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I used to want to cry a lot anyway, but um, now if I see something that brings tears to my eyes, I just let them come. And even at work, you know, we'll be having a farewell for someone and I'm always the one crying, but everyone's used to that. And I'm okay with that now whereas I would hold it back and worry about it before so you know we've got to feel it all yeah because it's it's funny it's so cliche but it's just like you realize what's important in life and Mm. like expressing yourself and being you that's like the only truth in life you know what I mean that's what we're here for yeah you know we're here to experience life as us to have our own expression of this life and when we hold back we're not we're not living for us we're living for someone else and when you when you come to the when you come to the edge of death or you see death or death's like in front of you Mm. it's like what's the what's the lesson to that it's like something you realize well i'm here to live yeah you know what i mean so why the fuck would i hold back yeah you know what i mean yeah and look i think 
we, you know, your podcast is about living an adventurous life. And for me, that doesn't mean you have to save your money and go across the country and put yourself in situations where you've got to train for eight months to do something. For me, it's everyday adventuring. Mm. It's going for a swim in the ocean if you've got that opportunity before work. It's coming to a place like this of an afternoon. It's just doing something every day that scares you. That's one of the other things I like to say is do something every day that scares you. Yeah. And some days for me, that might be eating tuna because I hate tuna. <laughs> but, but other days it might be jumping out of an aeroplane. Yeah. Just do something every day. It might be having a hard conversation. Yeah. with someone it might be telling someone how you're feeling because yeah. that's that's scary stuff yeah yeah we've been like steph yesterday you you jumping off the rocks was like mm. for, even for me like watching you do it like watching you go into your fear you know what i mean and like i i knew you're capable of it but it was just like you know watching you go into it and still like do it it's just like it's like it's funny, when I was just on Norfolk just then, there was this young kid, my, my mate's nephew, that we kind of took under our wing, and he was kind of like, would always talk himself up and say how good he was at things, but then he wasn't, he was scared, and I had this chat with him, I was like, we, we got him to jump off the highest jump you could do at this, at this rock jump, and he was like ecstatic, he's like, yeah, I did it, and jumping, and I said to him, I was like, how good's this feeling right now? The, the, the feeling of achievement, you know what I mean, that you did it. Okay, isn't that better than feeling like, than telling everyone you did it but knowing inside you can't mm. or that you didn't? You know what I mean? Like that when yeah. you're lying to yourself kind of thing. I'm like, and I said, wouldn't it be more fun if you play the game where like it's achievement? I was like, you don't have to go jump off a, a cliff every day. But I'm like, just like do those things. Instead of going out and telling everyone who, who you want to be, mm. You know, you go be that person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Steph, it's amazing. Here, grab the microphone and <laughs> say hi. It's been amazing. Like, hi, Steph. Hey, guys. <laughs> yeah. No, like, watching exactly that. It's like, that's the lesson there. Like, watching you yesterday jump off the rocks. Like, you're shitting yourself. Yeah, and today. Oh, and, <laughs> and today. Easier. But you still no, did it. Bit. Like, how did you feel when you jumped into the ocean Yeah, I was today? stoked with myself. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And, like, I was grateful to have you there sort of, like, encouraging me. It definitely made a difference. But you knowing that I was capable made me believe in myself more. Mm. And that's you as the guide, yeah. Michelle. Yeah. Like, you putting that, that in people. Yeah. Yeah. That's freaking brilliant. But in saying that, it's like you, you nailed it before, too. Adventure doesn't have to be, like, training for this no. for eight years. And it's like the line to adventure is, like, Steph, I wouldn't do that for you if it was, like, 10 foot barreling kegs <laughs> and I know you're going to get mad. I'm like, no, cause then that's just traumatizing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like Jordan Peterson says that the, the art to, the art to picking up your life is start by cleaning your room. It's like mm. little steps. It's like, if you just set yourself a huge goal at the end, you're just going to be disappointed. Yeah. You got to do all the little steps on the way, like go just like the little bits of achievement. It's like the, I, I, I like to say like the, line and steve in iceland told me this he goes when you're in the mountains he's like the line of adventure is where certain death is on one side and everything you know that you already know is on the other mm. he's like you want to walk the line yeah. so it's like for me the lesson in that was okay you've got your fear and you've got what you're capable of you know i know i'm capable of this i can do this i'm sitting here in my comfort zone but it's like just push that a little bit yeah. Just go a little yeah, bit out of that, that edge. and then be on that line. And then that line will get greater. Go to the next bit. You know what I mean? Mm. But don't just jump. 
yeah. you'll fucking die. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think um, biochemically our bodies don't know the difference between fear and excitement. And so we have the same physical chemical reaction in our bodies, whether we're fearful or whether we're excited. And so when I get fearful, I try to tell myself I'm excited. Yeah. If I've got to go and speak in front of 500 people or something, it's like, no, I'm excited, I'm excited, I'm excited. And I just keep strategy. telling myself that, yeah. Mm. yeah. I, I do the same. It's like, I just say to myself, oh, I've got this. Yeah. I was like, oh, I do that. I, I like to actually say to myself when I'm really scared, this is just the adventure. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I often just say that. to myself, how will I feel after this? After I've done it. Yeah. That's what I look toward. It's like, if I, you know, so when I'm trying to decide whether to do something or not do it, it's like, if I don't do it, how will I feel afterwards? If I do do it, how will I feel afterwards? Yeah. And it's kind of like doing it. When I was a kid, I always had to jump off everything first. There's two things in that where, <laughs> where I'm the first to do a lot of things, like when, you know, everyone's scared. And one is because the love that I have for my friends around me, that I don't want to put them in that situation. Yeah. And then the other is like, normally it's like peer pressure. It's like Aaron will do it. You mm-hmm. <laughs> just fucking do it. Yeah. And I always, when I was a kid, I had this like fear, you know, like when you're standing on, say, like a bridge. And you're bridge jumping and you're so scared because of the height. I'd always just say to myself, like, this is, this is not a good lesson, by the way, listeners. But it's, I would always just say to myself, well, fuck it. If this is how I die, this is how I die. You know what I mean? And then I'd always say that to myself and just jump. It's my time. And then you land and you're like, oh, I'm fine. And then you look at it and you go, of course I'm fine. I just Wasn't jumped six high. feet off a bridge. <laughs> you know what I mean? What was I scared about? You know what I mean? Yeah. That... You are an amazing storyteller, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It took a long time to be able to actually talk about it, and obviously a lot of psychologist visits, but it's good for me now to talk about it. It actually feels, it feels right for me to talk about it, and I think the reason for that is that it's about, for me, showing other people, particularly women my age, that you know we can get out there, we can do stuff, and sometimes shit goes wrong, and we can come back from it, and sometimes it's the best thing that ever happened to us. Yeah. Yeah. When shit's going wrong in the wilderness and mm-hmm. or just in, in an event or just whatever, I I always say to people, well, this is the adventure. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be fun. Yeah. You know, what's what's the fun in that when everything yeah. goes perfect? Yeah. You know what I mean? We, and, and the reason why I like to say that, it's, it's that positive, like, yeah. pick me up because people get in their head and they start freaking out. And as soon as you freak out, you die. Yeah. I like the idea of a plot twist. Plot yeah, twist. No, it's like straight <laughs> to the, you know, as soon as you yeah. freak out, you die. You know, yeah. I said that to you, you on the rocks. When I, was I was like, rocks. as soon as you panic, you die. Oh. Because I'm like, you, you do. Great. You know Great what I mean? Too. Like in the most extremity of it, it's just like as soon as, you know, but it's like, yeah, you know, when stuff's, it's not going to help any situation freaking out. You know what I mean? And then like, yeah, maybe it's just a mind game if you just play this game and go, all right, let's just see the positives. Yeah, it's the adventure. But at least then you can think rationally mm. and try and deal with the scenario. Yeah. And, you, and you're in a situation where you're given no choice. Yeah. You had to man up. Yeah. You had to do it. I did. Yeah. Just had to take the next step every day. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Is there anything... I know you've given so many life lessons... And, and and so many things. Is there anything that you would love to, to leave on? I'm just going to... I had that one... Qu- you, you said, whatever it is you're going through, have faith. So I'm reading this from yeah. the end of your... My would story, you, yeah. Would you like to read it? Or you, you, you can read me? it. Okay, so at the end of your story, you said, 
Whatever it is you're going through, have faith that you will get to the other side. And when you do, remember to look closely enough to recognize the gifts from your experience and welcome the personal growth and change within yourself. Yeah. That's yeah. That's yeah, that's, that's probably the message I'd like to leave. Well done, Aaron. Um, mic drop. Yeah, mic drop. Um, I, think, I think that's it. It's about, I mean, we've got to recover. If we're in a traumatic, well, I can speak for myself. I was in a traumatic experience and I didn't give myself the opportunity to recognize that first and recover from it. So when I did, then I was able to recognize the gifts. I was able to see the opportunities for me. And I, you know, I, I find with any travel, even when things don't go wrong, that um, the integration of the lessons and the insights that I had on my adventure really don't come back to me and settle in my bones until I'm home and I've settled for a while. And so I always thought I was one of those people that just yearned to put my backpack on and just take off and travel for two years. But I'm not. I know that actually for me, the lessons, the, the insights that I get when I travel um, integrate into my body and my bones and my mind and my soul when I'm back at home Mm. You know, in an environment where I'm not stressed and... When you're grounded. Yeah, when I'm mm. grounded and when I can, you know, when I'm back into my meditation every day and all that sort of stuff, that's when I, I think I get the biggest benefits and insights out of the travel. So, yeah, because you took the lessons to your every day-to-day life. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So I, I, that's what I'd leave people with is, one, it's never too late. I didn't start doing any of this stuff until I was in my 40s. Um, and I smoked most of my life. So, you know, I wasn't already a very fit person. But I, I got that way in order to allow myself to do some of these things, enjoy the moments and, you know, realize that the hardships, like you say, the plan B um, yeah. sometimes is is sometimes exactly what you need. Yeah. And, we're, I, and I always think too, at the end of the day, we're always left with a good story. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just like, fuck. You know what I did the other night? I got up and sung on a stage. Nice. And it was terrifying. <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't even that. It was just like, I, I had this thing in my mind watching my friends on stage that that's not for me. It's for them because that's mm. what they do. Like how you said before, like, you know what I mean? It's never too late. And I was watching them and I was like, wow, it's just too scary. But I, I never even considered that I could do that mm. because it's not me because I don't do that. That's what they do. And then I was like, then I just had this thought like, well, they were once not the person that mm. got on stage. Yeah. And then I wondered what it was like. And then my mate's like, oh, come sing a song up on stage with me. And I was like, okay. And I did it. It was so much fun. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. try to do it again. But mm. I'm a terrible singer. But like, you know, like whatever. Me too. It doesn't, doesn't <laughs> stop me from singing though. No. <laughs> hey, well, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for so much bringing us to such a magical place down on this creek mm. in the promised land. Yeah. It's Down beautiful, isn't it? Thanks never, for having me. Road. Yeah. And, I, and I've been drinking the whole time. This yeah. I've got to, got to say this free, is it, what's it called? Yeah, free? It's free brewing co. It's organic. a free organic brewing co beer is very tasty. It I don't get fun. hungover on it. Well, it's all the better. It doesn't have crap in it. It's all the better. It's just easy drinking. Yeah, organic. It's a nice beer. Yeah. Organic beer. Yeah. Thanks Ash who uh, runs organic free brewing co. I'm plugging you right now because you deserve it, mate. Thanks, Ash. <laughs> no, all, right. <laughs> all right. And thank you so much, Wild Earth, for um, and you for entering the, the competition. Yeah. Can I just take a moment to thank yourself and Wild Earth? As you said, I was the winner of their prize pack and being a guest on your podcast. And the prize pack's amazing. It was like Christmas all over again when it arrived in the mail. Really good gear. Kind of I mean, I've never been into Wild Earth because I live down here in Coffs, but I buy 
shit from them all the time. She and used a discount code. Really, yeah, yeah. I saw the discount code. Diaries um, of the, the, the Wild Ones. All capitals. 10% off. <laughs> Wait, I get so lost in that shop. It's freaking ridiculous. Do you yeah. remember as a kid, I when I was a kid, I had Toys R Us. Yeah, same. Which is like, and I'd go in there and just like yeah. run around and have it's so like much Wonderland. fun. Yeah, Wonderland. Yeah. That's what it's like when I go into Wild Earth. It's yeah. just like, because they have everything for adventure. I'll have like, to go in next time I'm on the Goldie. It's insane. Yeah. It's just this huge showroom of just, but the thing is that the people in there too, they're adventurers. Yeah. So they know like everything. That. And yeah, but it's like, it's dangerous for me mm. because I go in there and then I get all these ideas and I want to do all this shit. And <laughs> then like, yeah. And then I get stuff I don't need, but then I end up, no. Nah, yeah, someone said to me the other day, how many puffy jackets do you need? <laughs> Unfriended them straight away. <laughs> 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 all right, all right, let's get out of here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Aaron. That was great. I hope you guys like this episode. Now, remember, I've got prizes to give away for whoever shares it for me. Go on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, put it on your social media story, tell your mum. Send me a message, send me a screenshot, or I'm just going to see it on Apple Podcasts anyway, or I'm going to see it on social media. And every week, I'm going to pick someone and I'm going to send them an O-Penal Knife or a Diaries of the Wild Ones t-shirt. Enjoy, guys, and thanks for listening. I do it like a double.